0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Crime reporters are used to getting phone calls at strange hours. It's just part of the job.
0: You get a call in the dead of night. Scoobs, got to get up. What are you doing? And it's like, what do you think I'm doing? I'm sleeping. And uh, all I remember was there's been uh, a fire in Childers and we think two people are dead. And that was about 3am, 4am.
1: Scoobs is my former colleague and now friend of 20 years, Kim Scoobris.
0: It wasn't light yet. And I remember sitting on the chopper pad at Channel 7 at Mount Cuther in Brisbane and we were just waiting for the sun to come up so we could take off. And by the time we arrived in Bundaberg, those was a couple of hours, and then made our way down to Childers, the death toll was slowly rising. And that was probably one of the most chilling things for me. I was about 10 years into my nearly 30 year career. And I hadn't actually experienced a disaster on home soil that we were literally clocking the death toll by the minute and the hour. And that was incredibly sobering.
1: The way it works for these things in regional areas is the local news stations are normally the first on scene, but if it's large enough, the big guns from the city will soon roll into town to pick up the state or national news responsibilities. So Scoobs and I were about to meet for the first time. She wasn't alone, though. Childers was being swamped by media. Carl Stefanovic was in his first week with the Nine Network.
2: I remember I got a call from the chief of staff saying, you're going to have to fly to Childers. Now, I'd been through Childers many times because I used to live in Cairns and I used to go through Childers and we used to stop there all the time in the bus, the, the old McCafferty's bus. So I was familiar with Childers and I said, what's the story? And he said at the time, maybe eight or nine people have been killed in a fire. And I remember just feeling a little bit of shock at the, at the number of people. And then as I got to
1: work, the number had grown. The news helicopter convoy was on its way. Channels seven, nine, 10, and the ABC. Print, TV, and radio, and the international publications weren't far away either.
0: I remember that even though by then it was daylight, there was this awful glow about the building because the fire was obviously smoldering and the embers were burning and we were talking about a wooden structure 98 years old timber and even though it was it quickly ignited and the fire is on the scene early the whole thing was eerie you know I will never ever forget seeing that palace sign there's something about that sign and even recently i took my children through childers to go camping up near bunderberg and i still get this shiver down my spine it's just it just moves you so much and there was just people walking around in a daze at that point i didn't realize that they were backpackers who were actually the lucky ones who had escaped but there were people walking around with blankets and there were locals who were just walking around like zombies. I mean, we're talking about a little close-knit town and one of their landmarks had gone up in flames. And I think everybody was in shock, understandably.
2: They just had that thousand yard stare. Um, And I remember thinking, this is so eerie and so quiet and so awful that no one could really talk and it really hit home for us and we had to go around and try and assemble a story at the time and it was kind of difficult to get people to talk and it's an awful part of the business but we needed people to talk about what had happened and it was difficult i got the sense that there was there was great emotion tied into this but at this point in the story it was just pure and utter shock as to what had happened
0: It's not just a landmark, but it's a beautiful facade. You know, the the gorgeous wrought iron, uh, century old building, the history and the character. And sadly for many of the character traits that made it beautiful, it also proved to be a horrible death trap for 15 backpackers.
1: The first official press conference was held mid morning by late afternoon, government officials had chopped it in, including Queensland Premier Peter Beattie. Do you remember when you first heard that this fire had happened?
3: Well, I do. Obviously, when your Premier get briefed about major events and major tragedies, and obviously I was briefed about this, and it was clearly bad news right from the beginning, and uh, we were uncertain about how many people had passed away, but we knew there were people who had and Childers was always a very strong community, and every strong community, however, gets challenged from time to time for, with, with tragedies like this, and our immediate response was to do what we could do, to be supportive.
1: Uh, you got up there pretty quick, didn't you? It was, it was important yeah. to you to be on the ground?
3: Well, it's important because when a tragedy happens, one of the most important things state government can do is work with the local council. And we had a very good local mayor in, in Bill Trevor who was not just a good mayor, but actually really was with his community. He was part of the community. Some elected representatives think they're above the community. Bill never did. He always was part of the community. But obviously we needed to make sure that the, all levels of government were supportive. We needed to work through what had gone wrong.
1: Prime Minister John Howard sent the Foreign Minister Alexander Downer.
4: When I would first heard about almost simultaneously... With a news broadcast and the local federal member, a great fellow by the name of Paul Neville, he rang me to tell me all about it and it was a terrible tragedy. A lot of young people had died in horrendous circumstances.
1: By the time the news went to air at 6pm...
4: Live from Childers, Queensland, this is
2: National 9 News.
1: There were still 18 people unaccounted for arson was already being presented as a likely cause.
3: There's talk among the people here that the fire was deliberate. Police are also suspicious. They're investigating claims that threats were made to burn down the hostel. The
0: story just kept changing extremely quickly. And then on top of all that, we had all these rumours about this being arson. So it went from being a horrible fire and a likely high death toll to hang on a minute. There is a much more insidious and dreadful storyline that is now underwriting this whole whole tragedy.
2: And then when we found out that, there, that this may have been arson, that it may have been deliberately lit, it was like it very quickly turned to a sense of, of anger. And how could this happen? Why would you want to set a Backpackers Hostel on fire? These are just lovely people enjoying their time in Australia. We're seeing the best of them. And how could the worst of us want to do something to those beautiful people? The following day,
3: it was confirmed. This is the person that we are seeking. We have a number of unanswered questions, and he is the only one that can answer those questions for us.
0: As this story was evolving as far as we were focused initially on the death toll and the fire itself, this underlying rumour mill had started about this person, this itinerant angry man. People had said they'd seen someone fleeing the scene. It was already coming almost, you know, concurrently with the fire story. So it wasn't a major surprise to hear that the police were pinning someone for arson because we'd already heard just so much rumour that it was deliberately lit right from the start. But when they actually said it and the authorities said, we're looking for this person, that's when the locals went into overdrive. The anger started and there was a palpable rage in the community. You could really feel that turn. And I think everybody was in disbelief that someone could be so evil.
2: But it literally was that. What comes first? Is it grief on a huge scale, an international scale? Is it the fact that this guy's on the loose and we don't know how dangerous he is? We don't know where he is and could it happen again? They're questions. They're big questions. And all the while you're having people come from outside of this beautiful place inundating the town. with a a different energy. Um, There's grief coming from overseas and multiple countries. I mean, how do you explain it? I mean, these poor people have to travel that far. Imagine that level of grief in a transit from the UK or the Netherlands or even Japan, you know, flying into
1: this place. As that was happening, a makeshift morgue had been set up on the street.
2: That, to me, was the most heinous part of the whole thing, was knowing that there were backpackers inside this... This morgue, and you'd see police officers in in full CSI kit up, going from the backpacker residence where, and you don't even want to think about what happened and what they went through, but going from there inside, you know, some of these walls, and and remains um, into this this makeshift morgue, they're fully dressed, so you had the, the vision of all that going on, and it was just really awful. It was an awful sense, wasn't it, of, of just. Oh, how many are in there? And and you know, you've got relatives coming into town, they're seeing all of this. It's like, you know, normally these things are, are behind closed doors, but this was on the main street of this town that had become the focus of international media attention. It was all there for everyone to see.
1: While the perimeter of the town was being combed for the man suspected of being responsible for the fire in the town center, it was impossible to miss what was a graphic reminder of the human toll of this tragedy. The coroner, Michael Halliday, certainly didn't mince his words.
3: I'm heartbroken with what I have seen. Absolute desolation is to be seen inside those
4: four walls.
1: It had become the lead story across the world, especially in the UK.
3: Ten young Britons fared dead in Australian hostile blaze.
1: This was how the UK heard of the tragedy. News from half a world away that shocked a nation. Stories of survival were being written and told. The foreign press, journos like Frank Thorne had arrived. The world was getting to know the 69 survivors and slowly learning a little more about the 15 innocent victims.
4: One of the things that struck me is that these were not itinerant drifters or low-life young people by no means. They were, one or two were salt-of-the-earth working class youngsters like like Keith O'Brien, but the majority were university students enjoying their gap year, and they were destined bright futures, becoming lawyers, professionals, economists, scientists and the like, and uh, it was an absolute uh, travesty that uh, their lives were cut short.
1: Three days after the fire, my cameraman Mick Gray and I were among a small group of media who were taken through the building. You know, the, the big one is the, the number 15. That'll always stick with me. You, know, you look on the wall and there's 15 and you just Where go. was it? I remember looking, it was, I think it was on the back right side of, of the building as you look at it and it was just written up in big letters. Under some of those windows with the bars, weren't they? Mm, mm. I distinctly remember seeing three numbers written under mm. on the wall and close to where the where the bars, the bars were. were on the window. and that in itself, I think, I think once, once that was that was looked at and investigated, you know, the, you know, bars on windows, people not being able to get out, you know, the the true extent of the terror that these people would have felt will never be known. You know, if you can imagine it, if you can just close your eyes for a minute, you know, and your listeners, and just imagine, you know, the place is on fire, you should be able to get out, you should be able to open up a door, you should go down a fire escape, you should be able, to, but but to be faced with a with a barred window. And unable to get out. It's it's unfathomable. The terror is, is, is worse than any horror movie you can imagine.
4: It was an horrific scene. We learned that 10 backpackers had actually perished in one of the upstairs rooms and four in another room next door, which had bars on the windows. There was no escape. Their only way out was along a narrow landing at the top of the stairs, but that was in an atrium which became like a, a chimney. So the fire shot straight up those stairs, which was their only way out. and they, So they were beaten back by a wall of flames.
0: I remember the first step I took past the police tape. I heard this horrible crunch under my feet and there was just shattered glass everywhere. And then my first tear was shed at that moment, I'd already shed some, was when I saw part of a passport. And I notified one of the scientific officers and they picked it up because it was pretty soon after the fire that we were allowed in. And that broke my heart because it made it personal. It was a bit of passport of someone who'd perished. And I remember then with the camera operator carefully, so we weren't disturbing anything, very carefully moving around. And you just smell this overwhelming stench of ash. And in your head, it was death. You know, I've sadly been to quite a few fatal fires in buildings, but also car fires and car crashes and the whole scene was just so terribly sad and horrifying. And we weren't allowed, obviously, we couldn't access that higher part because it was destroyed. But someone had already put a spray can and simply put oh, a one and a five. On a wall and it was such a poignant image in our coverage and to this day fellow journalists say that that image that shot of the one and five on the wall that black one and five is what they take away from all the all the horribleness of the of the images Mm. but you couldn't help as you walked through with the crunching of the glass under your feet and that smell around you that this place only a short time before had been filled with lively beautiful fun backpackers who were there for a fabulous adventure you know you saw the remains of the lounge room where they'd watch telly and the outback courtyard area where they probably sat and had a cold beer at the end of the day after you know doing some pretty tough work in the fruit picking fields And that's what was just so heartbreaking, that because we'd by then talked to some of them, you could really picture what it had been like before it became this ghostly place.
1: What what emotion does it stir up in you today? I mean, I know for so many people, it's still raw and it kind of... Look, a little bit of a
4: chill there were a, a, a couple of moments I guess um, I remember the first time I went through the burnt out shell with um, taken through by the local police sergeant Jeff Fay. it's kind of surreal you're walking through these charred ruins and everywhere are these little yellow numbers written on the floors written on the walls and those numbers were the the numbers of the people and the bodies that they'd found and you're just making these exaggerated efforts to step around or step over and and not Sort of walk on, on that sort of site where someone had perished. So um, that still lives with me; gives me goosebumps.
1: For everyone involved, it was profoundly sad, incredibly moving. And if I put my reporter's hat on for a moment to reflect, an absolute roller coaster of emotions. It was impossible not to get swept up in the intense sadness of the occasion. Everywhere you looked, there was grief and the way Childers is configured, the palace certainly couldn't be missed. So you're feeling it without necessarily being welcome and trapped in this competitive bubble against rival networks or newspapers or stations with tragedy as the pawn in a game of headline chasing, which at times had its own sinister undertone. But at the same time, there was a job to do as media. We were the eyes and ears to everyone who wasn't there. I mean, there were parents of some of the survivors who were able to see and hear from their kids because the media gave them a voice. 20 years on, we can roll out a scrapbook of history and better understand what took place, why it happened, and tell stories of pure resilience and heartfelt experiences. And... In its own way, despite the, at times, extreme solitude, the media had each other's back. I mean, you'd kind of go into battle by day, but in Childers, we looked out for our peers, picked each other up when required, shared a hug, a few late-night drinks, and developed mateship through our own lived, shared experience. For me, I was so new to the TV reporting game, I was like a sponge taking in every move from people like Kim and Carl and I reckon it's the first time I was ever exposed to a foreign press corps. I learnt more in one week than I did through an entire degree at university about journalism, people and life. I think what often gets forgotten and sometimes with good reason is that media, well, we're human too.
0: I think... uh... You experience it in the media and you'd experience it as a victim of crime, which this was and is, that uh, it's often the case that when you come back from something like that to reality and the day-to-day, it's very hard to explain to your loved ones and friends and, and colleagues even what you've been through and you really take solace in being able to share that on occasion with the people you were there with. Because they're really the only ones who get it, and I mean, we lived in a bubble, and we just absolutely were immersed in this little town. And by the end of that, nearly three weeks, I knew every trader on the street. I knew who was uh, going to get me a coffee in the morning. I left with the butcher giving me lamb shanks to bring home to to my family. I mean, you felt part of the community, which was pretty amazing. So, out of all the tragedy. There were some pretty amazing, you know, shows of kindness
4: and humanity as well. A few days later, um, the kids had erected uh, a board uh, with a white sheet in the street outside the ISIS community centre with all the names and the details of the children's 15 who had died. Now, I was standing there in the street in the evening and tears were streaming down my face thinking this could have been my own two daughters in a few years' time when they grew up and started travelling. And then a young man tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, are you Frank Thorne? He said, I'm Matthew Brace from The Observer. I've only just arrived in Australia and I'm told you might uh, be the man to help me. As, um, since uh, The Observer was a UK Sunday newspaper and a broadsheet and no competition to the Daily Mirror, uh, the tabloid mirror or, or myself, I, I quickly dried my tears and uh, told Matthew to open his notebook and gave him all the useful names and numbers I'd gleaned over the past few days. And as a result of that, myself and Matthew Brace are, are still the closest of friends to this day
1: and helping the media through it all, providing a very real grounded dose of perspective and crucially availability, the local mayor who simply said, I didn't create this situation, but I'll do my darn best to repair the damage as best I can.
0: The fallout from this tragedy has been phenomenal.
1: Still gets you, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it does. It still gets me. As I talk about it, I can still smell the palace. And I will never forget amazing Mayor Bill Trevor just sobbing on my shoulder a few days into it. And that will stay with me for the rest of my life.
2: I think Bill Trevor was an, was an incredible leader during that time. I first met him, he's a big fella, um, and, and we got on really well straight away. Straight talker. You know, he came from the land. I think he ran a farm just outside of town, so he had experience with these backpackers. But the way that he was able to deal with that huge array of emotions um, during that time was nothing short of incredible. And I had I had a lot to do with him after that as well um, in the years that followed. And I... Uh, I think that when bad things happen, it takes leaders to stand up, and no-one stood up more than he. He shouldered the responsibility. He guided the town through a great deal of grief, through the manhunt and then beyond, into recovery. His leadership cannot be questioned. I still admire him greatly to this day.
0: Bill Trevor is your quintessential country mayor. He's a little gruff on the outside, strong as an ox, and he's got a heart made of marshmallow. And he's absolutely not afraid to call a spade a shovel. And during that excruciating time, he wasn't afraid to shed a tear and show his vulnerability. And in my humble opinion, that makes him an incredible leader. He stood there unscripted. He held his community together He fought for the rights of his community and for the victims and their families, and continued to years on. He traveled across the globe, ensuring that the victims' families' requests were met. That shows dedication beyond a title, and that shows exactly just how much he loves Childers and the
4: type of man he is. Childers was uh, one of the biggest stories I covered in my 23 years in Australia. It's bound to get to you, and it got to me a few times. And I was in tears quietly on my own, and, uh, and on the odd time with other journalists uh, who comforted me. And we took turns in breaking down. You can't help it.
1: Your career's obviously taken you to a yeah. lot of these type of events. That was very early in your career um but i guess it's probably just as big as most things that you've covered isn't it
2: i think it is yeah um the the thing is when, when you get older and, and when you do bigger stories and then around the world the stories are big because they're on a huge scale but this story will always resonate because it was such a big story in such a small town everything was huge about it and all the emotions were big and and this is just local people trying to deal with the most heinous of crimes It was one of the first big stories that I'd covered, um, but but mostly I have a connection to it because of everything I saw in those couple of days and, and weeks. Every person I said hello to meant it. Every person that was there for a backpacker, every copper, every ambulance officer, everyone in the township was affected and that doesn't happen every day, thank God.
0: In every way, this story is extraordinary. And in nearly 30 years of journalism, It is still one of the ones people ask me about. And I think on so many levels, because it was so close to home.
4: I'm surprised more journalists don't end up in counselling, but somehow we sort of uh, go to the pub, get it out of our system and carry on.
1: I can certainly vouch for that. My thanks to Kim, Carl and Frank for taking time out to share their memories for this podcast. Three very fine journalists who played a major role in telling the story of the Palace Backpacker Hostel Fire. This episode was written and produced by me, Paul Cochrane. or the sound was edited, designed and composed by Zoltan Fecho, and it's been supported by the Bundaberg Regional Council. If you're in or near Childers, please do pop in to pay your respects to the victims at the incredible memorial. And don't forget to hit subscribe and tell your family and friends about the podcast. My thanks for
4: listening.